Blog Talk Radio. All right, everyone. Welcome to another special edition of Theology Matters. We have uh, bringing you two debates uh, this month. Last uh, week we did the discussion with Doug Beaumont and Tony Arsenal on had an informal dialogue <clears throat> on the doctrine of justification. And this week, <clears throat> excited uh, to have some gentlemen with me here. Uh, getting over a cold. I apologize about the uh, coughing there. Um, if you've not liked us on Facebook, uh, go to the uh, Theology Matters with the Police at Facebook.com. You can see a lot of our other uh, past shows there, our podcasts, and we've hosted several debates. This will be the third debate that we've hosted uh, with the Catholic and Protestant dialogue. And I should probably... Uh, say it more like that. It's it's a dialogue. It's it's not a debate. I asked them to join an informal dialogue, so clear that up. Um, but we've done Mormon Protestant. Uh, we've had uh, Matt Delaney from the Atheist Experience on, and we've done some debates with him on abortion as well as uh, atheism. So be sure to like our page and check out some of our podcasts. Uh, kind of want to jump right into it because there's uh, you know a lot of uh, things to discuss like last week, so we'll just jump right into this thing, and uh, we're going to be discussing the doctrine of sola scriptura tonight, uh, sola scriptura. Representing the Roman Catholic view on this topic will be Brandon Vaught. Uh, Brandon is a best-selling author, blogger, and speaker. He is also content director to Father Robert Barron's Word on Fire Catholic Ministries. His work has been featured by several media outlets, including NPR, Fox News, CBS, EWTN, Vatican Radio, Our Sunday Visitor, National Review, and Christianity Today, and is a regular guest on Catholic Radio. Uh, this year, he was named one of the top 30 Catholics under 30 by Focus. And, uh, you know, folks, I'll tell you, I've, I've been to uh, Brandon's website numerous times and he has some excellent stuff, you know, Protestant or Catholic, some really good stuff on uh, just dealing with atheism, the problem of evil, just top, top-notch uh, thinkers over there. So we'll put a link up on our Facebook page to his uh, website there, Strange Notions. Representing the Protestant view will be our friend Mike Willenborg, who's been on the show before. He debated uh, Muslim or not a Muslim, a Mormon, and a uh, and Chris Date uh, from RethinkingHell.com, who who holds to annihilationism, and they they have that debate. Uh, he holds a BA in philosophy from the University of Hawaii, uh, masters in apologetics from Southern Evangelical Seminary, and is currently pursuing an MA in philosophy, also from Southern Evangelical. Michael's spoken all over the world uh, on a number of apologetic and theological issues. Most recently, he was part of a public dialogue with Tim Staples, uh, director at Apologetics and Evangelization at Catholic Answers at UNC Wilmington. So without further ado, let's go ahead and bring on um, our guests. Brandon and Mike, are you there? Yes, sir. Yep. Good deal, Brandon. I didn't. I didn't murder your last name, did I? Actually, you're one of the few who got it right on the first attempt. So well done, Devin. 
Well, you know, I have to uh, I have to give uh, credit to Doug Beaumont for that because we were talking uh, we were talking on uh, Messenger and he had said, well, it's it's Vaught, and so I was man, thank you for thank you for letting me know that before I made a, an idiot out of myself. So, all right, guys. So um, what we kind of the format for the show is we wanted to give each uh, each of the guys <clears throat> five minutes to kind of explain what they're uh, position is why uh, Mike uh, affirms Sola Scriptura, why Brandon does not affirm it, and then I think uh, Mike was going to go first with his question, and then Brandon, and then mine, just kind of go back and forth and do like we did last week where we had like a 15 to 20 minute dialogue uh, on each question. So uh, without further ado, Brandon, did you, did you want Mike to go first because he's affirming it, or did you want to go first? Yeah, I think it would be most interesting and helpful to all three of us if Mike defined what he means by sola scriptura. Uh, there's lots of definitions floating around both at the popular level and the academic level. So I'd be really sure. interested to see what what does Mike mean by it. Well, you know, okay, Mike, take a few minutes and go ahead and, and uh, define that for us. All right, happy to. Uh, I have to be careful. These these things floating around uh, near Halloween, you, you know, you got to be careful. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> but first of all, I, I want to thank uh, Brandon for uh, agreeing to uh, to participate in this dialogue. I, I think we're going to have a great time. I very much uh, look forward to it. And so I want to express my my thanks to Brandon and also to you, Devin, for uh, having shows like this. It's uh, extremely important that these kinds of issues be discussed. So thank you very much. But uh, the particular conception of Sola Scriptura that I would want to advocate has it that Scripture is the um, only accessible form of special revelation to which the church at large has, uh, or that has as its audience the church at large today. And there's a few reasons why I frame it that way. First of all, uh, notice that I'm not denying the authority of the oral word of God. Uh, many Muslims, for example, claim that Jesus has appeared to them in dreams and has directly given to them the oral word of God. Obviously, that is binding on them. Uh, also, the proclamation of Scripture uh, orally is binding. And so, sola scriptura should not be taken to entail a denial of the oral uh, word of God, or of the authority of the oral word of God. Also, I want to leave room for natural revelation to inform our beliefs about God. And so this is why I want to frame Sola Scriptura as the view that Scripture is the only accessible form of special revelation uh, addressed to the church at large today. And the reason this is important is because Catholics often charge Sola Scriptura with being self-refuting. And they'll say, well, if it's not in Scripture, then uh, then we shouldn't believe it, because Sola Scriptura is the view, according to them, that we should only believe in uh, what's in Scripture. That is not at all what I'm saying. I would probably agree with Brandon and with the Fourth uh, Lateran Council that God is a simple being, but the doctrine of divine simplicity I take it is not something we get from Scripture, but we can get it from natural revelation. So, Sola Scriptura 
is true if it's part of either special revelation or natural revelation. And so just because it may not uh, be in Scripture, it doesn't follow from that that it's not true. Um, as far as how I would go about arguing for this, the question for me is, how do we access the oral Word of God uh, today, apart from just the proclamation of Scripture in oral form? Uh, the Roman Catholic Church claims to deliver to us the oral Word of God in its encyclicals and papal bulls and in the decrees of ecumenical councils and so on. Uh, and my question here is, are these um, documents supposed to be God-breathed? It seems to me that if they are not God-breathed, then they can't form part of the Word of God, either oral or written. But if they are God-breathed, then since they're written down, they would form part of Scripture, since they would be the written Word of God. However, paragraph 120 of the Catechism says that the written Word of God is exhausted by the Old and New Testament, from which it follows, seems to me, that the only uh, accessible form of special revelation to which the Church at large has access is Scripture. So that's why I would hold Sola Scriptura. Okay, uh, Brandon, maybe you want to take a, a couple minutes uh, and explain some of the problems you see with Sola Scriptura? Yeah, yeah. First, I want to reciprocate uh, Mike's thanks. Uh, thanks to him and thanks to you for hosting this dialogue. I'm excited to do it. Um, it's always good to find uh, brothers in Christ who appreciate the significance of some of these issues. You know, I know a lot of my even Catholic friends would think that the discussion we're having here uh, is it doesn't really has no bearing on salvation or on the substance of the Christian life. So it's good to find uh, fellow journeyers who uh, understand that these things do matter. Uh, I thank you, Mike, for giving me your definition. Uh, just to rehash it again, you said that Scripture is the only accessible form of special rele- uh, revelation addressed to the church at large. Um, and you also added, though, that you do believe in natural revelation, that is, things that we can know about God and the faith through reason alone, through nature, um, as well as a, you, you said you did believe in oral tradition, um, but you added a few caveats there. So that, that was a helpful definition. I appreciate that. Uh, you also offered a couple of questions, which we're going to get to later, so I don't want to dwell on them now. Um, one of them that you asked was the very first question uh, we'll tackle whenever it's my turn to answer yours, which are, are the uh, oral tradition, is the tradition that the Catholic Church passes down God-breathed? So we'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, and then you address the fact that the Catechism of the Catholic Church um, I believe, was it paragraph 140, you said, lays out the teaching uh, that uh, the canon of, of written divine revelation contains spe- specific books of the Bible, 73 in the case of the Catholic Church, and therefore if oral tradition is written down, it cannot be uh, a form of special revelation because the Bible exhausts all of uh, special revelation in written word. So there's a lot there. Um, I hope that we can maybe take one piece at a time. But to answer your question, Devin, um, there there are many reasons why I think uh, sola scriptura 
should not be held by Christians. Um, one of them is the historical reason. I, I don't think that sola scriptura was taught in the early church. I don't think it has general historical precedence before the Reformation. So I think it's an ahistorical position. Uh, I do think, despite what Mike said, that it is internally contradictory. I don't think you could logically embrace sola scriptura without contradicting the principle itself. Uh, I think it's unbiblical. I don't think it's what the Bible advocates. I think the the Bible advocates uh, the Catholic position, which is uh, that God passes his word on to us both in writing and and oral word, and that those forms of divine revelation are guarded by a living magisterium. Um, And then also I think that... um, the practical problems of sola scriptura have emerged, especially over the last couple centuries. So I think it's impractical because it leads to uh, incredible and extraordinary division. And so for that reason alone, I can't believe it's what Christ would have established as his mode of passing on his word. So uh, I know some of those are general. So if Mike would like to uh, dig into one of those particular objections, I'd be happy to, but um, I think for me, sola scriptura fails not in one degree or in one area, but but kind of across the board. Okay, all right. Um, so what we've done, folks, is we've given them, uh, asked them to submit three questions each, and they both have the opportunity to to, to see the questions. They uh, kind of looked over them, so they kind of know what's coming. Um, so before we jump into it. Um, Mike, did you want to ask your question first, or Brandon, did you want to go first? You guys, you guys, tell me. Yeah, how about I go first? Is that all right, Mike? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's fine. So one of the okay. things that I that I really uh, struggled with whenever I was uh, a Protestant. So uh, I, I don't know if you added this, Devin, but I was Protestant for the first um, eighteen years of my or twenty years of my life, and then converted to Catholicism in 2008 while I was in college. And uh, one of the central issues for me was the canon of Scripture. Now, for those who haven't heard that term, we're not talking about rolling the Bible up into a tube and shooting out projectiles. <laughs> we, we mean the, the books that make up the Bible, so the table of contents in the Bible. Um, most of my Protestant friends would assume that the canon is infallible. In other words, uh, we know for sure which books do and do not belong in the Bible. We're sure that it contains all the works God wanted it to, and we're sure that we're not excluding works that should have been included. And so the first question I have for Mike is, how, on your definition of sola scriptura, do you get to scriptura? Do you get to the canon of the Bible? Uh, and, I, and I guess framing it in terms of your own definition, you said that the only forms of, of uh, divine revelation would be, or, sorry, the only forms of special revelation uh, would be scripture, but then you also embrace natural revelation. And so it seems to me that the canon of scripture would have to fall under one of those two categories. And if I think we both would agree that the canon of Scripture is not in Scripture itself, nowhere in the Bible does it say these are the books that belong in the Bible. That'd be self-contradictory. 
um, then I suppose you'd have to defend the view that through natural revelation we know what makes up the Bible. So, so that's my first question. How do you get from sola scriptura to the canon of Scripture? Okay, uh, well, and Mike, Mike real, real quick, Mike, before you answer. So what we'll do is we'll spend the next uh, 15, 20 minutes and let these guys just kind of have a uh, dialogue back and forth. So at this time, you guys go ahead and, and uh, talk to each other on this question. Go ahead, Mike. Okay. Uh, well, first I, I want to clarify, I do not uh, think we have, or I don't think I have, infallible knowledge of the of the canon, just as I don't have infallible knowledge that Jesus is Lord of the universe or that God raised him from the dead or, or those things. I have probabilistic uh, reasons to think those are true, good reasons, I think, but certainly I could be wrong about those things and I don't have... Uh, logically incontrovertible arguments to the effect that those things are are true. Um, With respect to this canon, I do think the Bible uh, helps us a little bit here. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, it says that uh, the scriptures are God-breathed. And by scriptures, I take it it doesn't just mean the books that are God-breathed. Otherwise, the passage would be saying all the books that are God-breathed are God-breathed. I take it it's referring to the writings that the people of God uh, have accepted and have deemed sacred uh, over the centuries, that those writings uh, are God-breathed. And so we can look historically at the books around which there's been a consensus on the part of the people of God, and we can have reasonable degrees of confidence that those are the books that are God-breathed. And since Scripture in 2 Timothy 3.16 itself lays down that as uh, one, uh, perhaps among many uh, criteria for this sort of thing. Uh, I would say it's a conjunction of uh, special revelation and natural revelation, which gives me confidence that the the books that I deem to be in the canon are in fact in the canon. But I do not think we have infallible knowledge that that's the case, uh, just in the same way that I take it the Catholic isn't able to say that, that they have infallible knowledge uh, of the canon, at least prior to the Council of Trent. It seems at least prior to that point, they had to operate with a uh, fallible understanding of the books that belonged in the canon. Okay, let me uh, let me respond to a few of the things that you said there. Um, it'll be easier for me maybe if I work backward. <laughs> Uh, so okay. the last thing you said was okay. Yeah, no, that, that was very helpful. Um, so the last thing you said was you didn't think that Catholics had infallible knowledge of the canon before the Council of Trent, and, and I'm going to defer that to the end because I know that that's specifically one of your questions. Uh, so let's let's put that one to the side for a second. Um, okay. the, what I really want to hone in on though is you said that you don't have infallible knowledge about what books make up the Bible. And then you challenge saying that you didn't think Catholics did either, at least before Trent. But the real question here is not an epistemological question, not about our own knowledge, but it's an ontological question. It's about whether the books of, of, that, that are in the canon are, in fact, infallible or, or not. And so I guess what I'm trying to drill at here is how how can you have confidence um, in the Bible itself if you're not confident that the books that make up the Bible are in fact infallible? 
um, that that to me was was very troubling as a Protestant. If I couldn't be sure that, say, the book of James belonged in the Bible, I mean, if I if I wasn't confident that it was an infallibly located book, what sort of confidence would I have in what the right. book contained? So, how would you answer that? Yeah, well, I'd say I am I am confident in the in the fact that the books I think are in the canon are actually in the canon. I'm just I don't have an infallible uh, source telling me that. In the same way that I'm confident that I exist, even though. I don't have any incontrovertible arguments to that effect. I don't have incontrovertible arguments to the effect that, that Jesus is the Messiah, but I'm, I'm quite confident of the, of the fact that I don't lose any sleep over it. Um, so uh, what we have is a probabilistic uh, argument for a particular book being a source of revelation, and it seems that that's what we have to have to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior at all. You look at history, you look at the evidence for the resurrection, uh, that's a fallible process by which we reason to the conclusion that he is Lord and Savior. Uh, and then after we reach that conclusion, we take what we understand him to be saying as uh, infallible revelation. But the process by which we deem him to be an authority is indeed a fallible one. So the process by which I deem certain books to be authoritative is also a fallible one, but once I reach the conclusion, then I trust those books as infallible sources of revelation, and I attempt to base my life upon them as best I can. Okay, so it sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds like that your judgment of what books belong in the canon is a probabilistic argument based on some background evidence, I'm guessing, uh, the historical evidence, the the likelihood of, of a particular book being in versus it not being in. Uh, and and I, I get that, and I understand it in the abstract, but let's get a little bit more concrete. Um, so as, as you probably know, at the time of the Reformation, Martin Luther wanted to exclude at least four books from the canon. I believe they were Hebrews, Jude, um, James, and Revelation. And so how would you respond to, say, a Protestant today who wanted to remove one of the books from the canon because they believe that it didn't teach the gospel or taught something contrary to the gospel? On what basis would you uh, reply that such a book had to remain in the canon? Right. So I would say a number of things, uh, the first of which would be, given that the general consensus of the church, Protestants, Catholics, Orthodox, Mormons, whatever, comes down on the side of James and Revelation and whichever books you mentioned, uh, other ones. Um, the burden of proof, it seems to me, would be on the detractor of those books to give reasons and to offer arguments as to why those books shouldn't be uh, included, given that if they happen to accept Second uh, Timothy and therefore accept Second Timothy 3.16, uh, we need to take seriously Paul's statement that... Um, these scriptures are God-breathed. And I would ask them, what does he think scriptures uh, refer to there? Is it uh, is Paul giving us a tautology where he's saying, well, the books that are God-breathed are God-breathed, or is he saying the sacred writings are God-breathed? And then we have to look at what is the church, what have, what have the people of God deemed to be sacred writings? And then uh seems to me, given that the general consensus uh, comes down on the side of those books, we can have a reasonable degree of confidence 
though not uh, incontrovertible confidence. Nevertheless, a good degree of confidence that those books do uh, belong in the canon. Does that does that help with your question, or do you want? I mean, it helps a, a little bit. Um, it seems to me that, that what you're essentially boiling it down to is sort of an argument by majority that as long as, you know, most people throughout most of history accept a particular book as part of the canon, then that's, that's a good enough probabilistic argument that I should probably include it too. And, and so I guess what I would say is um, what, would you what would you do in a case like with the Aryans where a majority – of Christians around the world would embrace an unorthodox view. In that case, they weren't really contesting the canon per se, but, but say that a majority of, of Protestant Christians today decided to eschew the book of Revelation, for instance. Now, we know that, um, that uh, the book of Revelation was written after Second Timothy, and so he wouldn't be referring to Revelation in there. That could be one argument that uh, these proponents could use. But, but again, a, a that the probability worked against your argument, uh, what recourse would you have to ensure that revelation remained in the canon? Well, okay, so when 2 Timothy 3 talks about the scriptures, the, the writings, I take it that it's referring to whichever writings the church happens to, to uh, deem as authoritative uh, in any period. I think it's a general let me, let, me, let, me interrupt, let me interrupt you there um, because I want to get some clarity so I understand this point. Um, I think it'd be helpful in addition to defining sola scriptura. How would you define church in the sentence that you just said? Uh, I would, and obviously we'll, have, we'll likely have a disagreement about this. I would refer to the the set of people that possess the Holy Spirit that are in union with Christ. That is the the church. So if you think about it as in terms of the, to use perhaps more ecumenical language, the mystical body of Christ, I'm, I'm happy enough with that language, and that just includes all of those that are united to Jesus, whatever exactly it means to be united to Jesus, and we might have disagreements about that. But the set of people that are united to Jesus, that's what I mean by the church or the people of God throughout the, throughout the century. See, and to, and to me, that kind of that kind of sounds a bit circular because if we say that we can determine the books of the canon based on what the church accepts, and we define the church as the people who are united to Jesus, but we define the people that are united to Jesus by whether or not they hold to our interpretation of the gospel, which is grounded on the scriptures, then we're well, right back to the question of what makes up the scriptures. No, I, I, think, I think we can have a decent idea of what uh, the gospel is by looking at the historical evidence pertaining to uh, the, the gospels themselves and the writings of Paul and the resurrection and that sort of thing. We don't have to come with any sort of theological assumptions to come to a basic knowledge of the historical Jesus and what he said and what his followers taught. Uh, so I don't think it's circular. We don't have to to say that, well, the reason we um, accept, you know, that we're defining union with Christ by way of reference to what books I think belong in the canon. That's, that's, that's not how I'd go about that uh, process. Let me, uh, let me push the button a little more, if that's all right. Because okay. um, I, I just think this is a really important issue, and it's a, and it's a very distinct point of division between 
Catholics and Protestants. Um, I, I guess I'm I'm really struggling to see how if you weren't if you didn't have infallible knowledge about the canon, um, how would you know which parts of the Bible are infallible? I mean, because couldn't it be possible that the Bible couldn't could contain fallible books if we're not if we if we're not confident that the canon is wholly infallible? Couldn't it be that there's some writings that are in there that don't really belong in there? Well, so I do think the Bible is infallible. It just depends on how you define what we're worried about is what constitutes the Bible. So I think whatever, yeah, right, be- right. whatever belongs in the category of special revelation is infallible. And so you and I are both going to have, it seems to me, probabilistic uh, assurances or credences that certain uh, elements constitute uh, special revelation. Uh, just as I have only probabilistic confidence that Jesus is an authority about God, that doesn't mean I, uh, you know, I, I think that some of the things Jesus said might have been wrong. No, I, I've come to the conclusion that he is an authority about God, but that conclusion was reached by means of a fallible process, and I could be mistaken about it. So having having reached that conclusion, I take what Jesus says to be infallible, and I submit myself to that. In the same way, I come to a knowledge of the extent of the canon by fallible means, probabilistic means, means that uh, are subject potentially to error. But once I've reached the conclusions that I've reached, then I take the contents of what I believe to be in the canon as being infallible, and I attempt to submit myself to them. There's a it seems to me there's an exact parallel between the way in which I reach the conclusion that Jesus is an authority and how I respond thereafter to uh, the way in which I reach the conclusion that the certain biblical books are infallible and the way I respond to them thereafter. Obviously, the arguments to get to those conclusions will differ, but um, in both cases, the arguments are fallible, the arguments are subject to potential mistake. And yet I retain, I think, a high degree of confidence both in the authority of Jesus and in the nature of the and the extent of the canon. Um, yeah, so, that makes sense. To, that makes sense to me, and I would agree that the epistemological process of coming to know which books belong in the Bible, or that the Bible itself is infallible that that process itself is fallible merely because of our own limitations. Um, Each of us are forced to use our own uh, sin-tainted will and reason to arrive at that conclusion, but the conclusion itself is either infallible or fallible. The canon is either infallible or fallible, however we arrive at that conclusion. And so, so I, what what bothered what bothered me was that I think and and correct me if I'm if I'm wrong, but I don't think sola scriptura can stand on a fallible canon. Now, again, sort of sidestepping the issues of whether we can know if the canon is fallible or infallible. Uh, this is an ontological question. I don't think if the canon is fallible that sola scriptura can be a viable option. Okay, maybe we need to define canon here. It seems that we might be using different understandings of the term. 
because you keep referring to my understanding of the canon as if it were fallible, and I would want to say, no, the books that belong in the canon I think are infallible, but my judgment as to whether those books belong there is fallible. Uh, just like the teachings of Jesus I think are infallible, but my judgment as to what those teachings are is fallible. It seems to me there's an exact parallel, but we seem to be maybe talking past each other a bit here. And so I wonder if we could get some clarification on exactly what, what the term canon means and how we should use the term going forward. Yeah, I think we're using it the same way, that the canon is simply the authoritative books that make up the Bible. And so to put it in popular-level terms, it's just the, the the table of contents that you would find in, in your Bible. And it, it seems that you're echoing a, a pretty uh, notable Protestant, R.C. Sproul, who admitted a few years back that he uh, believed in a fallible collection of infallible books. That's how he described the canon. It was a fallible collection of admittedly infallible books. And I think when I when I when I heard that then, as I still do now, uh, I kind of I, I don't see how that practically would work on sola scriptura. If if you think that the that the canon of scripture is is fallible, that it perhaps contains extra books or it doesn't contain uh, books that it should then you can't tell whether the books within that canon are infallible or not. Now, would you say that that's how you describe your position as that the canon is a fallible collection of infallible books? Yeah, okay, I guess. Gen gentlemen, Mike, uh, hold on one sec. Mike, go ahead and take uh, two minutes to answer the question, and then we need to move on to the next question because we've already been uh, 20 minutes okay. on this question. So take two minutes, wrap us up, and then we go to your question for Brandon. Go ahead. All right. Well, boy, Brandon, I don't know about you, but I'm having a lot of fun. We may have to do this again because there's just so much. <laughs> um, so, and it's it's a shame that R.C. isn't here with us because I guess I'm not exactly sure what he means by that statement either when he talks about there being a fallible collection of uh, infallible uh, books. So I would want to get some clarification from him on exactly what that's supposed to mean. Uh, what I mean is just that... Uh, the list of books that I deem to be God-breathed, I arrive at what I think that list is by a fallible process. But I think the books themselves are infallible. If that's what Sproul means, then I agree with him. And if he means something else, then I'd have to see what exactly he does mean uh, before I could say whether I agree with him. But uh, hopefully you would understand what I mean. Does that help? I'm I'm not quite sure yeah, it helps. It helps me a lot, and I think we, I think we've reached a point of at least agreement that we, we both agree that the books themselves are infallible. But I think we're probably still divided on the, the question of how do we determine the canon of scripture? How do we know which books belong in it and, and which don't? Assuming your definition of sola scriptura, um, so I think that's where the divide still lies. But uh, Devin, what do you think about you want me to move on to my second question here? Um, well, you. How about we do this? How about if, if it's okay with you, let's alternate and let Mike ask you a question. Sure. Uh, sure. I, great. What, I'm, what I fear is we'll run out of time, and uh, and let me let me say this real quick too, because a lot of people are calling in. Um, and if these guys want to come back, we could do another show and just take calls. But just for interest of the show, there's so much uh, material to cover. Two hours really doesn't even scratch the surface. 
And so we're not uh, we're not taking your phone calls uh, today. Uh, we just want to leave the time for the guests. But uh, you know maybe these gentlemen would be willing to come back, and we could just do a show uh, taking your calls. Uh, we'll we'll talk sure. and get back with you. Uh, so the question to you, Brandon, that Michael uh, gave was, uh, are the documents uh, promulgated by the Roman Catholic Church, such as encyclicals, bulls, and the canons of ecumenical councils, God-breathed? And I'll let you guys take uh, 15, 20 minutes to go back and forth. Yeah, before I respond, Mike, was there anything you wanted to add or clarify, or did that, that pretty much nail it? Uh, no, I think we we can move on. Okay. Um, that's a really great question, and it's one that you hinted at at the outset of the show, Mike. Um, one quick note before I answer it, and it's kind of a matter of subtlety, but it's worth noting that uh, the Catholic Church is composed of both the Roman Catholic Church and Eastern Catholic Churches, many of them, over 20. And so there are 17 million members of the Eastern Catholic Churches around the world um, who 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 believe the same thing as the Roman Catholic Church. They have different liturgical rites. And so it's it's not technically correct to say that encyclicals, bulls, and canons of councils are promulgated by the Roman Catholic Church. They're promulgated by the Catholic Church uh, per se. But to answer your question, uh, are these documents God-breathed? So you're referring, of course, to the verse uh, from 2 Timothy, which you had quoted earlier, um, let's see, uh, let's see if I can find it here in my Bible. Um, yeah, that second Timothy three, 16 through 17, that all scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for refutation, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that no one who belongs to God may be, uh, uh so that one who belongs to God may be competent, <laughs> equipped for every good work. I don't want no one in there. Uh, but but so you're referring to that um, that word inspired by God, which in, is translated from the uh, the Greek word theopneustos. And the simple answer is that no, uh, encyclicals, bulls, and ecumenical councils are not God breathed. However, that does not mean that they are not authoritative. Um, Catholics make a distinction distinction between divine inspiration, which is sort of a positive gift. The Holy Spirit leads you to say or do the right thing. Uh, we believe that in the case of scriptures, that uh, the scriptures are the words, the word of God and human words. And so it is the Holy Spirit positively speaking through the words of men. Whereas these other examples, encyclicals, bulls, and ecumenical councils are protected by the Holy Spirit through infallibility, which is a negative gift that the Holy Spirit keeps you from saying or doing the wrong thing. And so there's, a, there's an important distinction there, but what's true in both cases is that both forms of either uh, divine revelation or passing on uh, the deposit of faith are authoritative. So just because something is not God-breathed, uh, doesn't mean that it's not authoritative. So uh, how would you respond to that? Oh, well, first of all, I, I appreciate the uh, distinction you made there, and I understand that that's important, particularly with uh, reference to the the statements that uh, come from uh, the Pope, and I realize that the idea isn't that 
you know, that he's receiving revelation and then giving it to the church, but that he's merely attempting to cull the tradition and that the Holy Spirit protects him from, from error. So I think I understand that. But my my question is, we, at least I think, we agree that the uh, written word of God is exhausted by the scriptures. And so um, the only other question in terms of whether there's another source of special revelation concerns the status of these written documents, which seems to me to be the, the vehicle through which the Catholic Church uh, pronounces and promulgates its, its doctrine. And so my concern is that if that, if those promulgations, if those documents uh, that contain them aren't God-breathed, then they can't constitute the Word of God. And so the only form of special revelation to which the Church would have access then would be Scripture. Uh, because the only other forms that they could possess are uh, these these documents, whether ecumenical councils or papal bulls or whatever. But if those aren't uh, God-breathed, then they can't function as the Word of God. And thus, um, the only other option there is in terms of the Word of God that can bind the church at large uh, would be Scripture. Okay, let me uh, respond in a couple ways. Um so maybe this let me let me ask a question that maybe gets at the heart of the of the um discussion so are are you concerned that that if encyclicals bulls and ecumenical councils do not constitute divine revelation for the reasons that you gave then they can't be authoritative that something has to be part of divine revelation to be authoritative is that kind of what you're driving at uh, no, and that's a very good question. I'm glad you asked that because sometimes uh, it's misunderstood uh, among Catholics, I'm sure not intentionally, but that, that Protestants don't want to uh, say that the Church has any authority. I'm, I'm happy to say the Church has fallible authority, just not uh, infallible authority. So no, I recognize that something can be authoritative even if it isn't God-breathed. I think God institutes various authorities within the Church even though he doesn't inspire them in that sort of way. So, no, that's not what I mean to be claiming. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold off on responding to that point until the next question because I, I, I do very keenly want to know how you would be able to determine uh, when gauging a fallible authority what claims from that authority are binding and which aren't, where, or in other words, where that authority is right and where that authority is wrong. But I think that ties into my next question, so we'll hold off. Um, but getting back, getting back to this question, um, I think the simplest way to clarify what the Catholic Church believes in this case is that she would agree with you that the written form of divine revelation, the written form of the word of God that has been passed down to us is exhausted in scripture. Um, but we also have this second stream of divine revelation, which we call tradition, which is simply the oral teaching of the apostles passed down through the apostolic church. And then we have the magisterium, of course, this living teaching authority that uh, communicates and passes down scripture and tradition to us today. And so all the things that, um, that, that you listed, encyclicals, bulls, and councils, would be examples of the magisterium acting in a living way to either clarify, clear away confusion, or, um, or more 
uh, more directly teach what's already taught in scripture or in tradition. And so we're not claiming that encyclicals, bulls, or councils are a new form of divine revelation, as if they're, you know, some new word of God that's, that's being spoken to the universal church. And instead, these things merely clarify and bring into greater light things that have already been passed down through the, through the church's history. All right, so I guess to, to sort of sum up my, my argument, if, if I can try it uh, very quickly, uh, it would be we agree on the status of Scripture as the, the written Word of God, so then the only disagreement between us is with respect to the oral Word of God. I think uh, the only accessible means of the church at large to uh, receive the oral Word of God is through what is written in Scripture. Because, of course, prior to Scripture, all there was was the oral Word of God. So I think the oral Word of God is itself contained in Scripture. So my question, uh, to sort of reiterate, uh, is to say, how is the oral Word of God accessed by the Church today? It seems like it would either have to be accessed through these written documents or just in a purely oral form. But uh, as far as I understand, nobody claims uh, that the Catholic Church goes about promulgating its views in purely oral form. Rather, it comes about by, me, by means of these written documents. And if these written documents aren't themselves God-breathed, then they can't uh, be the oral word of God to us, both because they're written and because they're not the word of God. Um, and so I guess that that's the sticking point for me, is that if they aren't God-breathed, then they're not the word of God. And if they aren't the word of God, then the only word of God that is accessible to the church and addressed to the church at large is scripture, which is just what I mean by sola scriptura. Yeah, Catholics would agree that scripture is the only God-breathed word of God. Uh, as I explained, uh, we don't think that um, tradition was God-breathed for that encyclicals or bulls or councils where God breathes in the same sense that the uh, the Holy Scriptures are. Um, but I think we're getting hung up on, on sort of this idea of whether something is written down or not. What I may be detecting, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, is, is that uh, you're kind of concerned that if you have this oral tradition that is communicated through writing, so say there's an oral tradition that originated with the apostles and was passed down through their successors through the centuries. And then in the year 2014, the Pope communicates that tradition in writing. Then now he's putting down uh, teach, uh, authoritative teaching in writing, but we previously agreed that the scripture exhausts all the um, divine revelation in writing. So, so how could this be? And I think the simple answer is that the oral word of God, a.k.a. tradition, doesn't stop being divine revelation simply because it's later written down and passed along or uh, simply because it's written down in encyclicals or in bowls or councils. The content itself, the deposit of faith, uh, remains part of divine revelation and thus authoritative and thus uh, protected from error. And so maybe that might get at the at the heart of the confusion that just because something is is written down doesn't mean that it qualifies as the written word of God. It's still the the oral tradition, but later put into writing. Does that make sense? 
Well, I understand that. Just as uh, as you mentioned, Scripture was previously oral, and so we could say Scripture is the oral word of God uh, in written in written form. But not only uh, is it written, and I'm not so worried about the written part, but you've already said that the encyclicals and papal bulls and and uh, other such documents aren't God-breathed, which means they're not the word of God at all. Uh, and that, it seems to me, is, is the issue. If Sola Scriptura ought to be understood, as I, I think it should be, uh, as the view that the only accessible form of special revelation uh, addressed to the church at large is Scripture, well, then it seems to me that uh, if there's an additional source of special revelation, it would have to be either written or oral, and it's not written because that just is Scripture, and it's not oral because you've said that the oral word of God, which is passed along in these written documents, uh, is not God-breathed. And so, or the oral word of God, maybe that's contained in the written document. I don't know exactly how you would want to parse that out, but yeah, the I, 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 I think I would agree. I, I would agree with that statement that the oral word of God, which is the tradition of the church, is not uh, God breathed. Now, uh, don't quote me on that because that might not be what the church teaches. But uh, I think a more important point to make is that the word of God is not only scripture. The word of God is Jesus, the incarnate word of God. And and sure, we know Jesus through scripture, but not only through scripture. And if, if we artificially confine ourselves to scripture alone, we risk closing ourselves off to the fullness of God's self-revelation. There are many examples in, in scripture itself uh, explaining how all that Jesus said or all that St. Paul wants to communicate or all that St. John, the gospel writer, wants to share is not contained in Scripture. So there's more there that wasn't captured in the written form of divine revelation. And that's what we Catholics simply classify as uh, the oral tradition or the divine revelation uh, that has been passed on orally. Uh, well, I understand that, and this is why I wanted to frame my conception of soul Scripture the way I did because I don't want to exclude the possibility that Christ may appear to Muslims and may speak directly to them so that they have an oral word of God that isn't maybe explicitly contained that way in the Bible. Or, of course, you've got your Pentecostals today that think God tells them all sorts of things that aren't in the Bible. And for purposes of this discussion, I don't want to uh, gerrymander sola scriptura so as to put them outside the outside the camp. So I, I understand that... Uh, there are things uh, that can be the word of God that are apart from Scripture. There's also natural revelation, which I would consider as the word of God in, in, in some sense, in addition to uh, Christ himself, who is the fullness of the word of God, as you've said. But uh, <laughs> the the issue for me is, and I don't, I don't want to just simply uh, keep repeating myself here, but what is the means by which we access the oral word of God that is supposed to be binding on the church at large. Uh, I say it's only through scripture, which contains the oral word of God, as we've already said. You say it's scripture and these other uh, documents, or at least I, I think maybe that's what you said. Maybe not. I may need to get some more clarification on that. But then if the documents themselves aren't God-breathed, I don't know how they can function as the Word of God in any sense. And if they aren't the Word of God, then it seems to me that the only accessible uh, way 
for the church to get special revelation binding on the people of God as a whole is scripture, which is just sola scriptura. So, um, yeah, and, uh, that, the the question that you that you started with there, you know, how do we access or how do we know this sacred tradition is exactly the second question that you're going to ask me later on. So let's let's put that one off because um, I'm interested in discussing that. But uh, I think I'm getting more clarity as I as I hear you because you you said something interesting. You just said that if if tradition is not God breathed, if it's not described as theopneustos then how can it be the word of God? I believe that's what you said. Is, it, is that right? Uh, well, yeah, or you could take it as a synonym. How could it be special revelation? How could it be... Uh, how can it be special revelation? Yeah. Now, but now to me... Authority. Yeah. To me, that kind of presumes that something being God-breathed is the only way that it can constitute special revelation. But when we look through Scripture we see that the Bible uses various terms to describe divinely originated revelation. So for instance, you'll find phrases like the word of God or the spirit of your father speaking through you or in spirit or filled with the Holy spirit and many others. And so none of those descriptions is of less divine origin and authority than Theopanustos. Um, it doesn't, necessarily have to be described or defined as God-breathed for it to constitute special revelation. I mean, would you agree that, that in the Bible, for instance, um, say um, St. Paul at the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15, when, when him and Peter say that it sounds good to the Holy Spirit and us, and then make definitive pronouncements, wouldn't you agree that, that those pronouncements were not described as God-breathed, but were nevertheless constitutive of special revelation? Oh, well, this is interesting. Maybe we need to have a discussion on what exactly we, we should mean by God-breathed, because um, I would take the word... We're, uh, real, 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 real quick, guys. We're, we're like 20 minutes on this, so I don't know if, if you guys want to move on to, to the next question. Uh, or whatever. I just I don't want it to look like I'm being unfair and making us spend more time on Mike's question to Brandon. So you guys decide. You, you guys want a couple more minutes? You want to move on to the next question for for Mike, or what I'll, do you want to do, Brandon? I'll leave that up to Brandon. Whatever he. Yeah, let's prefers. let's move on because Mike's brought up some really good questions okay. that I think we're going to address if we keep going. Um, so let's let's okay. go on. How about I how about I ask you my second question, Mike? Is that all right, Devin? Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. All right, so my second question for you, Mike, was how does determination of orthodoxy work within sola scriptura? In other words, how do you know that your interpretation of scripture is orthodox? And, and this kind of gets back to something you said earlier, which I found intriguing. You said that you thought that the church had authority, that the church could issue authoritative teachings, but that it was, in, but that it was fallible, so that it could perhaps be mistaken about what it was teaching. And so what, what I'm wondering is on Sola Scriptura, how do you know that a particular teaching of the church is, is right or wrong? And how do you know whether your interpretation of Scripture is orthodox, is true? Uh, well, okay, so I'm going to have to ask just, just one clarificatory question, if that's all right. Uh, what sure. do you mean precisely by orthodoxy? Uh, how are you using that term? 
Sure. By an orthodox teaching, I would use the root of the word to mean true. Um, but in, case, in the case of in interpreting scripture, I would say that an orthodox interpretation of scripture is an interpretation intended by the authors in Christ. And so, for instance, um, it would be an interpretation that doesn't violate scripture or violate the divine revelation that has been passed down to us. So how do you know that your interpretation of scripture is right? And, and maybe it, it might even help before I uh, give you a chance to answer, it might even help to get down to a, a specific issue, say, um, say baptismal regeneration. Um, I'm, I'm not even quite sure where you stand on that, and, and I, I'm not sure if it, it really matters, but the question is, how do you know that your view of baptismal generation is orthodox, is true, based on how you read the scriptures? Yeah, so I would say I know it the same way that a Catholic would know whether his interpretation of some passage is right where the church has not yet given an infallible interpretation of that passage. I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but if I recall, uh, the church has only given, you know, a handful of uh, infallible interpretations of particular passages, perhaps uh, Matthew 16, 16 through 19, uh, John 21, um, Luke 1, 28, you know, there's only a handful, really. And so... Uh, with respect to maybe 90% uh, or maybe be more, I'm not exactly sure if there's an infallible list of all the verses that they've infallibly interpreted. But uh, with respect to the vast majority of the text, the Catholic has to employ the same means that I would employ, namely uh, the tools of uh, good exegesis. So attention to context, attention to grammar, attention to... Uh, lexicons and understanding the meanings of terms, attention to the broader context in which the books were written, um, those sorts of things. Simply the same rules by which we go about understanding any piece of, of literature. And so it's a fallible process to be sure, but in the same way that I can have a reasonable degree of confidence when I read any other particular piece of literature that... Uh, if I've, if I've done my homework and if I've uh, took the time to attempt to understand what's being said uh, to the best of my ability, that I can have a decent uh, degree of confidence uh, that my interpretation is, is correct. I see a couple things in reply. Uh, one of them is that interpreting scripture is not like reading King Lear and trying to determine whether my interpretation of King Lear is exactly what Shakespeare intended. You know, I could be wrong about that and it wouldn't have much effect on my life, but whether we interpret scripture correctly or not, uh, could uh, our salvation could perhaps hinge on our understanding of scripture. I'm sure you'd probably agree. And so I'm, I'm not sure that we could analogize interpreting scripture to interpreting any form of literature. There's also the difference well, one is that... more significant than the other, for, for sure. Yeah, and I think we'd also agree that uh, that Scripture is infallible itself and, and perfectly communicated, that the words in Scripture are precisely what God wanted to communicate to us, whereas, you know, Shakespeare might uh, certainly wouldn't have that degree of infallibility in his works. Uh, but drilling, drilling down to, to something that you said, you said that um, the way that you 
that you judge or, or measure your own interpretation uh, to determine whether it's orthodox is the same as a Catholic. But I guess I would push back a little bit and say that when a Catholic is interpreting scripture, the Catholic is measuring that interpretation against an authoritative standard, namely the magisterium of the church. And so um, through some of the things we discussed earlier, like encyclicals, bulls, ecumenical councils, etc., we know what either does or doesn't constitute as an orthodox interpretation. Um, you're, you're right that the church doesn't have a verse-by-verse commentary of what constitutes orthodoxy, but we do have general bounds with which to determine whether our interpretation of a verse is valid or not. And the, the simple question is, does it contradict something that has already been revealed or defined through the magisterium? If it does, then it's not a correct interpretation. If it doesn't, then it could be a correct interpretation. And so I guess for the Catholic, uh, I would say that we have a standard of orthodoxy. You know, you might not agree that that standard is valid, but we at least would claim with logical cons- consistency that, that we have um, an, an infallible standard with which to judge our interpretations, whereas it sounds like from what you're saying, a Protestant wouldn't. A Protestant is kind of using his own fallible process and, and all the best tools that he has available to his credit, but really could be wrong, could be wrong in how he understands even pivotal verses in the scriptures. Is that kind of an accurate depiction of the difference? Uh, well, well, two two things uh, that perhaps need to be said. So you've said um, that, yes, there is some perhaps some leeway for Catholics with respect to the, to the majority of verses in the text, but the Catholic is able to operate within certain parameters because the Church has defined certain things, and so they know the boundaries beyond which they're not able to to go. Is that is that what you would say? Um, yeah, yeah, to an extent. Um, I guess maybe to to clarify, we know Catholics know that an interpretation of Scripture is unorthodox if it contradicts something that has been divinely revealed, either through Scripture or tradition or that has been defined by the magisterium. So that's a measure of of unorthodoxy. Um, In terms of orthodoxy, we we can flip the equation around. If it it aligns well with everything that's already been revealed and doesn't contradict anything, then it could be an orthodox interpretation. Um, Now, I will add, though, that the church at many times has positively defined what an orthodox interpretation of Scripture would conclude. Um, So simply reading the Catechism of the Catholic Church, for example, is an exercise in determining what the Catholic Church has deemed as an orthodox interpretation of Scripture. That's what the Catechism is. Um, So we do kind of play both sides of the the authoritative measure. We, We use the measure to determine what's in, and we also use it to determine what's out. Um, I guess one follow-up question that I have, and it's somewhat related, is if the Protestant kind of uses all the best tools he has available to him to determine uh, an orthodox interpretation of Scripture, what would you say to a Mormon or Jehovah's Witness who, who is operating with the same tools and hopefully with the same goodwill and intention 
um, who arrives at a contradictory interpretation. Now, you might say you're wrong and give reasons why, but it really would just be your interpretation against his interpretation. I mean, is there sort of an objective, authoritative measure you can appeal to beyond your own personal opinion uh, when dialoguing with a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness? How, how would you handle that? Oh, well, before I get into that, let me go back to the prior question because I hadn't finished um, answering those those questions. Um, you mentioned uh, so there's these, and I mean, I want to make sure I'm I'm representing your view accurately, but it, it does seem to me that what you're saying is there are these boundaries beyond which Catholics cannot uh, go. We know what is an acceptable interpretation generally, and so we know what we're, what we're able to conclude, what the scope is of potential meaning of, of verses, and we know definitely what certain verses don't mean because we know what our doctrine is. Uh, I would say that for a Protestant, well, at least for me, I'm only going to speak for me, uh, I take it that the Bible is reasonably clear about the things that one must believe in order to be a Christian. Uh, so clear, in fact, that there shouldn't be any disagreement as far as the fact that those doctrines are true. Uh, namely, the things that the Bible itself stipulates as necessary for belief. So, uh, the belief in the resurrection of Jesus, the belief in the death of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the incarnation, Jesus coming in the flesh, um, these kinds of things. That those things are true, it seemed to me, is, are, are, are so clearly revealed in Scripture that I'm perfectly comfortable with saying, yes, you could say it's fallible, my interpretation of that, given that, you know, for all I know, the Hindu could be right, and maybe this is all Maya, and there's, you know, no multiplicity at all uh, in in the world. But uh, within a reason, reasonable uh, limits, I can conclude... Um, that there are certain parameters beyond which Protestants or Christians in general cannot um, cannot go either, and that uh, apart from that, we have considerable latitude with which to disagree with each other and to discuss and to debate and to, to think. Uh, with respect to Catholics and their own uh, magisterium, I think it just moves the question back a bit to now the Catholic has to go to things like the Catechism. Uh, they have to go to things like the Canons of Trent. They have to go to things like Vatican II. They have to uh, cross-reference that with Unum Sanctum and other things. And you have various people that confess to be Catholics that disagree with each other about what those documents are saying. So just as Catholics can only have fallible access to what the Church is apparently infallibly teaching, uh, so, too, I can only have fallible access to what Scripture is infallibly teaching. Okay, let me, uh, I'm really interested to get some clarity on something that you said a few sentences ago. Um, when when saying, when listing off um, several um, doctrines that pretty much all Christians, Catholics and Protestants and Orthodox would hold to, um, such as the incarnation of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, etc., uh, you said that there are certain parameters with which Christians must agree on, but then beyond those parameters, they can kind of have reasonable and goodwill discussion about some secondary issues. So 
My question yeah. would be, who determines those parameters and, and what are they? Right, and so I would say that those parameters, uh, those beliefs anyway, are so clearly revealed in Scripture itself that we don't need uh, an external authority to to tell us what those things are. So, uh, so, so what are they? First John chapter 4 says explicitly, uh, if I recall, that if you do not believe Jesus has come in the flesh, you're an antichrist. So it's, this is how you know the Spirit of God, if Jesus comes in the flesh. So it's, it seems to be fairly clear that uh, a kind of docetism is, is ruled out, that if, if we don't ex- affirm the humanity of Jesus, uh, then we are outside the bounds of, of Christian uh, um, conceptions of, that, of who Jesus so, so is. So what about an Arian? Uh, well, I think there can be legitimate uh, debate about this. Uh, there are certain people that think Arians are, are outside the, the bounds, uh, and, and certain other people don't. I should uh, add, though, that for Catholics, this isn't overly clear, given uh, what Vatican II has said in uh, Nostra Aetate and um, Lumen Gentium about, you know, anonymous Christians and maybe the you know sincere Muslims and Jews can all be said. So it's not as though the Catholics have a list of things you must believe in order to be saved. Ultimately, as long as you're not stuck in invincible ignorance, then it seems like you might be okay. So there's really no list of things you've got to believe, uh, even according to the, the Catholic Church, as I understand it. There's a list of things you have to believe in order to be Catholic, but that's the exactly what uh, each particular Protestant church has as well. There's obviously going to be a statement of faith, a list of things that you've got to believe in order to be a member of a particular church. And if you stop believing one of those articles of faith, one of those articles of faith, then you can't uh, be a member of that church anymore. So uh, it seems to me that there's a bit of parity here. It's just that for the um, Protestant, at least as I understand how the Protestants should think about this, it's a lot... um, it's a lot narrower, uh, and the the amount of beliefs that would be categorized as non-negotiable is a lot less. Uh, whereas for a Catholic, in, in order to be a Catholic, you've got to subscribe to quite a lot. But uh, for me, in order to be a Christian, the, the list is fairly minimal. Um, it's no less important, but it's fairly minimal in terms of what needs to be believed. But as I say, the Catholics themselves don't have, as far as I know, a a list of things you've got to believe in order to be in the state of grace, because that could include Muslims or Jews or Hindus or Buddhists or anyone who's not in invincible ignorance and who sincerely seeks God. So it seems to me they're on on no better footing here than, uh, than Protestants are. I think we're confusing two different questions. One is the question of salvation, which you've been talking about for a little bit. Uh, But the original question was about orthodoxy. So it's not what do we need to do to be saved, but how do we know that our interpretation of Scripture is orthodox? Where do the bounds of orthodoxy lie? And I've, I've heard you say now a couple times that for you it's kind of one thing, but for other Protestant groups it might be something else. And so that's what I found troubling as a Protestant, was I, I couldn't know whether what I was teaching was, or whether whether how I was interpreting the scriptures was true, because Group A said it was, Group B said it wasn't. How am I to adjudicate 
the differences? How am I to know which one is right and, and which one is wrong? And that, that still troubles me, and I'm not sure I've had a, a clear answer other than, you know, you, you kind of alluded to the perspicuity of Scripture, that it's uh, what's needed for salvation or the true beliefs are clearly revealed. Um, but, but I think practically that hasn't quite uh, played out the way that we might hope um, because we, we see in the thousands of different denominations and Christian sects that there doesn't seem to be clear agreement on the basic bounds of the gospel or the basic bounds of orthodoxy. Well, I think that there's clear agreement that the beliefs I mentioned earlier are indeed true. There's maybe disagreements about the list of things you need to believe in order to, to be saved, but that those things are indeed true. I don't think there is much uh, disagreement there, except perhaps among uh, people that don't really have a high view of scriptural authority uh, to begin with. But uh, I guess I'm not troubled by the idea that I'm, that I could be wrong on a particular understanding of a given passage. Uh, if I think about many other fields, in fact, most fields, there, there can be wide arrays of, of disagreement. And, in fact, I think uh, part of that is uh, planned by God himself so that we would have uh, motivation to dig into the scriptures and to apply the tools he's given us to really think about these things and to wrestle with them uh, for ourselves and to apply our minds uh, the best we can. Uh, but the things that we need in order to be saved, in order to be genuine Christians, I don't think there is any doubt about those. And then uh, the rest uh, is important, but it's there for us to mind for ourselves and to uh, to wrestle with and to potentially uh, debate. And I just don't see that as a problem. In the same way that it's not a problem for uh you know, Dominicans to argue with Molinists or, you know, to different, uh, for different Catholic groups to argue over precisely uh, what uh, Trent means or whether Cal uh, some view of predestination is compatible with the church's teaching. I mean, they have, you know, sort of uh, intramural dispute as well. And uh, the mere fact that there's no sure word from, from Rome on a number of those things shouldn't cause them any unrest. Uh, as long as the things that they need to believe in order to be in a right relationship with God are clearly revealed. And I assume you would say that they are in the case of, of Rome, just as I would say that they are in the case of uh, uh, what I take Scripture to say is necessary for uh, Christian faith. Okay, let me ask you. That's 20 minutes. Uh, I mean, if you get, you want to... Keep going a couple minutes on this, Mike, or do you want to move to the next question? I'll I'll leave that up to you. Well, these are Brandon's uh, questions. Do we want to get to another one of his, or have we gotten through an equal amount of each side? Well, your, your question. It will be your question to him next. So why don't we why don't we just go ahead and because we've got basically you're on your second question to him, and then he has one more for you, and you have one more for him. And so if we want to do this, if we want to make it in time, we better get moving okay. uh, on Why the question. Is that all right with you, Brandon? Yeah, I think I can offer a short answer to the next question, so let's just go ahead with through with that. Okay. Um, and Are you guys okay? Do you guys uh, need me to take a 60-second break, let you guys get a drink or anything? You okay? I'm okay. Yeah, this is great. I'm okay. 
Okay. Didn't, didn't know if you needed a drink or bathroom break. All right. Second question, uh, Mike. Uh, Michael's question to Brandon is, uh, what entity discloses to us the content of sacred scripture? Uh, sacred uh, tradition is what I Sacred was tradition. Uh, sacred yeah. tradition. My, my apologies. And, guys, we'll have to go 15 minutes uh, pretty much exactly and then and then cut it off if we're going to get the other questions. So can't go longer sure. than that. Go ahead. Yeah, well, I think I have a very simple answer to this, and, and maybe Mike will have some good follow-up questions. But the simple answer is that uh, sacred tradition has been entrusted to the apostolic church, the church that uh, traces her lineage back to the disciples themselves. Um, however, it's, it is a little bit of an oddly worded question, assuming that by sacred tradition you're only referring to the unwritten tradition, um, because a Catholic would distinguish between the locus of the content of unwritten tradition, which we would describe as the moral consistence of the church fathers, and the authoritative organ, namely the magisterium, by which the authentic interpretation of the word of God is provided to us. So you, you, see, you see the distinction there that sacred tradition, um, the, the entity that discloses it is in one sense um, the moral consensus of the church fathers who carried on the apostolic oral teaching, but in another sense, um, the entity that discloses it to us today is the magisterium of the apostolic church. So is that clear, Mike, or do you have a couple of follow-ups from there? Uh, well, the reason I asked this question is because uh, it's not – so if the, if the church is the body that discloses the content of, of sacred tradition to us today, which is what you just said, then um, it seems to me that tradition doesn't sort of come with its own table of contents either. Uh, and so if sort of scripture not coming with its own table of contents is supposed to be a, a, a problem, then uh, I guess I don't see why it's not also a problem that, on your view, neither scripture nor tradition comes with its own table of contents because a third entity is necessary to provide that table of contents. Uh, but it sounds like you, there may be some distinctions there that you could elaborate on that would help with this, this issue. So I'll let you. Yeah, great, great question. Um, so in, in essence, you're saying um, if it's necessary to have an infallible canon for, for the written tradition, namely sacred scripture, why is it not a problem that we don't have an infallible list or an infallible canon of what constitutes the oral tradition or sacred tradition? And, and I'd say a couple of uh, things in response to that. One of them is that the oral tradition is passed on in a living form. So the oral teachings of the apostles, as given directly by Christ, are then passed down by the bishops, their successors. And so, in a sense, they're, they're living. We can ask for clarification. We can ask what's included or, not, or what's not included. But we can't really do that to the Bible if it lacks an infallible canon. So for that reason alone, I, I don't think it's necessary. We need an infallible list of what sacred tradition constitutes, or, or at least an exhaustive list of what it does and does not include. Um, but the second thing I would add is that 
I never said that um, an, an infallible canon was inherently necessary for Scripture, only that an infallible canon was necessary for sola scriptura. The Catholic Church doesn't technically need to have an infallible list of books in the Bible because we have the living magisterium to balance out any doctrines or teachings. So um, if, for instance, there was a, a book that wrongly was included in the Bible and it taught a doctrine that violated uh, something that had been passed down through divine revelation, the magisterium could point that out. And so it doesn't really put the Catholic in a difficult position if we lacked an infallible canon. I think it puts the Protestant in a devastating position, though, if they don't have an infallible canon and the sole rule of faith is, is lacking one. Um, so, so those are a couple of ways that I would handle the question, uh, why don't we need an infallible canon for sacred tradition? So I guess here's, here's another question that maybe will help me get some understanding on this. The rule of faith uh, for a Catholic, would that consist of both sacred scripture and sacred tradition together? Tradition yes. constituting the oral part? Uh, yes. Okay, so if that's the one rule of faith, having both those constituents together, and we have neither an infallible uh table of contents for tradition or an infallible table of contents for scripture, then it seems like we don't have uh, an infallible means of accessing the rule of faith, on your view, which seemed to be the very thing you were pressing against me, is that I don't have an infallible way of accessing my rule of faith, which is scripture. So if it's not a problem for you, I don't know why it's a problem for me. You could say, well, I have the church as well to sort of help me sort it out. But if the rule of faith doesn't include the church and the rule of faith is just sacred scripture and sacred tradition, um, then it does seem that there's a, there, there's an issue here. If it's supposed to be a problem for me as well, um, because it seems there seems to be an assumption that the rule of faith has to include within itself an infallible means of disclosing its own content. And I guess that's ultimately what I would dispute and I think the fact that the Catholic doesn't have that either helps to bring to the surface the fact that, that, that that's a problematic assumption. Yeah, I would dispute that claim, too, that Scripture and tradition um, infallibly and without any aid communicate their revelation. Um, and I would also, I, I really resonate with the conundrum you presented, which is if, if, say, we didn't have an infallible canon of scripture and we don't have an infallible list of what constitutes sacred tradition, then I would totally agree that assuming those are the only uh, things we have, then Catholics would be in precisely the same boat as Protestants. But Catholics do have a way to, de to, to determine, um, even without infallible canons or lists, what constitutes authentic divine revelation, and that's the magisterium. See, we believe that the magisterium itself teaches infallibly, that it explicates the scripture and the tradition. But as you said earlier, um, Protestants can turn to the church, but the church is fallible. And so that's why it's necessary that a Protestant has an infallible canon, because 
if the if the canon was fallible and any outside authority additional authority was fallible, then there'd be no way to determine infallible teachings. But the Catholic says we have scripture and tradition, and we need an infallible living teacher to interpret, to clarify, to deepen uh, these two streams of tradition. And that's precisely why Christ established it and gave us one in the form of the magisterium. So you, you, you don't mean to be claiming the rule of faith has to infallibly disclose its own contents. You're, you're not making that claim? What I'm saying is that the rule of faith, which is constituted of both scripture and tradition, is guarded by the infallible church. Okay, but I, I guess what I'm wondering is, if it is not the case that the rule of faith must infallibly disclose its own contents, then why is that a problem for Sola Scriptura that it doesn't do that? Um, well, I because I, then, so 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 let me get let me have you ask that question a different way. You said if if the rule of faith, which for a Protestant would just be Scripture, doesn't mm -hmm. infallibly uh, what was the word you used? Uh, disclose its own contents. D disclose its own content. So when you say that, do you mean disclose what it's composed of, disclose, disclose the books that make up Scripture? R right. Or on your view, you know, the rule of faith, which is Scripture plus tradition, doesn't tell you what Scripture or tradition is. And I guess if that's not a problem... Right. So that we're not claiming that rules of faith have to do that uh, by their nature, then why why does my rule of faith have to do that? Like, I see. Okay. Why the requirement for me would I not. Yeah, I I think I get your question. So so let's just paint the picture even more clearly here. For the Protestant, the sole rule of faith is the Bible. For the Catholic, the rule of faith takes the form of two streams: the Bible and sacred tradition. And so the Catholic would say that even if the rule of faith did not infallibly disclose its contents, that's okay because we have the infallibly the infallible magisterium, which is guided by God to clarify what is and what is not in Scripture and what is and what is not in tradition. But the Protestant, at least from my view, ha has nothing analogous. There's no infallible outside source to disclose what scripture is composed of or what's included in scripture. So if scripture doesn't disclose its contents infallibly, then the Protestant's in a precarious situation because then he would only have fallible insurance of what scripture includes. But I guess this is what I, I don't quite understand. So if, if a Catholic is sitting at home one day and says, you know, I'd like to find out what the Catholic Church infallibly teaches about X. And so they, they flip through the catechism looking for information with respect to X, um, whatever X is. And it seems to me they, they're engaged in a fallible process of having to flip through the catechism and read through the catechism and, and understand the language and go and look up the references and compare those with other councils. And that's a fallible process as well. Uh, and so it seems to me they only have fallible access to what is supposed to be infallibly taught also. Uh, and so I don't understand why fallible access to infallible teaching is supposed to be such a big deal. I mean, if you think about it, ultimately, in terms of Scripture, we have to start 
by doing textual critical work to to reconstruct as best we can what the uh, the original manuscripts said. And so, of course, we have to start with a fallible process to get uh, ultimately to what we think are infallible teachings. But I don't know why that's a problem for the Protestant when the Catholic has to do the same thing. Yeah, I, I guess I would I just keep hammering home this answer, and maybe there's a little disconnect there, but like uh, you offer a great example that um, there's controversy, um, say like at the end of the book of Mark, whether that those passages should be included in Scripture or should not be included. And for the Catholic, it's, it's a lot less troubling um, because we have a magisterium that can tell us whether this was something Christ intended to be included in Scripture or not, but more importantly, um, can tell us whether this aligns with the divinely revealed, uh, the divine revelation as revealed in either Scripture or tradition. Um, so, so we have an, an infallible outside authoritative source to help answer questions just like this one. Um, but the scripture is, or the Protestant is kind of on his own. Um, I'd also maybe add the distinction, one we mentioned earlier, between epistemological questions and ontological questions. So I would agree that each of us have to use our own flawed reasoning to try to arrive at these truths. You know, you mentioned you have to, you know, flip through the catechism and hopefully find the right passage, and that, of course, even assumes that you're literate. Um, but that doesn't take away from the from the fact that what we're seeking is an infallible interpretation of divine revelation. The, the magisterium is either infallible or not, regardless of whether our fallible reasoning attains to that truth. Does that make sense? Right, and I would say the same for the scriptures. I have to use my fallible reasoning to arrive at what I think the scriptures are infallibly teaching. So I have to apply the rules of exegesis properly. I have to be able to read. I have to be able to understand grammar. I have to be able to follow pronouns. You know, you got to be able to do that. But at the end of it, uh, the result, if you've done it correctly, is infallible teaching. Just as you, if you flip through the catechism correctly, if you look up the right passages, if you, if you understand the language, the result, on your view, is you've arrived at what the infallible teaching is. Uh, and so, again, there seems to be, to me, a sort of parity here that I know you're wanting to deny, but I guess I just don't see how it can be denied. It, it seems the same to me. Brandon, go ahead and yeah. offer uh, a one- or two-minute response, and then we will go to your third question. Yeah, I, I, think we've kind of, I think we've kind of exhausted this one, so how about we move on? Okay, your third question for Michael was, uh, why has Sola Scriptura led to hundreds of serious doctrinal disputes and thousands upon thousands of sects, many whose only point of agreement is Sola Scriptura itself? Okay, yeah, so, that, yeah. Um, did you want to add something to that, or, or should I? No, go, go for it, Mike. All right. So I guess I would take issue with what seems to me to be the assumption of the question here, which is that sola scriptura is what is responsible for um, all of the, the theological differences that persist uh, amongst um, Protestants. And I don't think that's the issue at all. If you, if you look in the uh, 
writings of different Catholic theologians and different Catholic philosophers, they debate with each other about all sorts of issues. And, of course, the Catholic response, and rightly so, would be they have latitude to do that. The Church has spoken on certain things. It hasn't spoken on other things. And on the things which the Church has not spoken definitively, there's freedom to discuss and to debate and to marshal one's own arguments and to come to one's own conclusions. Uh, And I would say, with respect to the theological differences that persist among Christians in general, the reason is there are certain parts of the Word of God that are much clearer than other parts. And so this is why I made a uh, big deal earlier about the uh, beliefs about which there's consensus and which which are so clearly revealed in Scripture that there's no disagreement. Uh, things like the resurrection of Jesus or the um, the lordship of Christ, these kinds of things. Uh, but with respect to the rest of uh, Revelation, I think we do have the freedom to wrestle with these things on our own, to debate and to discuss and to think about them and to seek God on them. And I don't think the fact that that happens is attributable to, to sola scriptura. It's uh, merely attributable to the fact that there... Uh, are some aspects of Revelation that are much clearer than than other aspects, just as when Catholics debate amongst each other, that doesn't necessarily have to do with the obscurity of the, uh, or with the the lack of uh, definitive pronouncements on those things or whatever, or, you know, that's not some fault in the system, but it has to do with the fact that, as I say, certain parts of the revelation are clearer than others, and uh, on those parts that are unclear, there's legitimate freedom to discuss and to debate, and uh, so I wouldn't lay that at the feet of Sola Scriptura at all. That just has to do with the fact that certain parts of revelation are clear and certain parts aren't so clear. So you you seem to um, be claiming that there are legitimate areas of disagreement among Christians, and which in which you could uh, have vivid and animated theological discussion um, totally within the bounds of orthodoxy. Um, but then on the other side, you have sort of fundamental, sort of basic beliefs, sort of primary or first-level issues um, that, I guess in your words, are clear from Scripture. Um, I think I would, as a Catholic, agree with all that up until the last point. Uh, we would agree that there are certain basics of the gospel summed up in the creed that one has to believe to be a Christian. Um, but what I would push back on is uh, a, couple of, a, a couple of different angles here. Uh, one of them would be, how do you know what counts as essential, and, and how do you deal with the fact that what counts as essential for you, like those beliefs you mentioned, don't count as essential for other people claiming to be Christians, and the second question I would ask um, would be, uh, how do you handle seemingly essential issues like justification, sanctification, baptism, uh, among which many uh, denominations vigorously disagree? You know, I'm thinking of, uh, I think it's Zondervan who releases all these five views books. You know, we got five views of justification, five views of sanctification. There's two of those books five views of baptism, 
And so these are very central, essential issues in the Christian faith, and we have wild disagreement about what Scripture teaches on those issues. And so uh, to me, uh, on sola scriptura, that's the inevitable result because it's one person's interpretation of Scripture against another, and there's no infallible guide to help us see which interpretation, if either, falls within the bounds of orthodoxy. So um, I threw a lot at you there, but l- let me sum up those two questions. The first one is, where do you, how do you draw the line on sola scriptura of what counts as an essential teaching and, and what sort of area can, can hold legitimate disagreement? And then number two, um, how do you handle disagreement in what scripture teaches on these very central issues like justification and baptism. Okay. So the first part of your question or the the first question was, how do I sort of decide what the essentials are? And there I would say, I would look to scripture to tell me what the essentials are. And so there are, that's what everyone else would say. Wouldn't you agree? Uh, and then we'd have to have debates about that. But I, I think uh, there are there are a few beliefs in Scripture which nobody would argue uh, aren't necessary for Christian belief. The disagreement comes when people want to throw other ones in. Um, but there are there are certainly a few that I think everybody would agree uh, to be necessary. And uh, I would simply stick with those that the ones that Scripture expressly declares to be necessary for belief. Those are the ones that uh, we should consider necessary. And the rest uh, we can have legitimate debate about, uh, even with respect to the process of justification, sanctification, um, the nature of hell, things like that. Those uh, those are interesting and they can be very significant, but uh, they are up for discussion and, and debate. In, in my so opinion. What, what, what the, what's the list in your mind of the essentials expressly and clearly revealed in Scripture? Yeah, so there would be things like the way, the way Paul describes the gospel in 1 first, in first Corinthians 15, the life, death, and burial of Jesus, uh, the lordship of Christ. Uh, Romans 10.9 mentions confessing that Jesus is Lord. First um, John 4 talks about the, the necessity of believing that Jesus came in the flesh. Uh, How, what about were, what about baptism? Uh, and believing that Jesus is the Christ and that sort of thing. Uh, baptism, well, specifically what with respect to baptism? Does ba- is baptism salvific? Are you asking me whether one can be saved in the absence of baptism? Yes. I would say yes, and if I understand the Council of Trent correctly, even the Council of Trent would say yes under certain circumstances. That's that's right. I would agree with your answer, but many, many Protestants would not agree. Um, and, and so baptism seems to me to be a very central and essential issue. Uh, both of us just admitted that, uh, um, except in very rare circumstances, it's salvific, but in this case, we have wildly differing views of of how baptism is understood through Scripture. And so um, at the beginning, you know, you said that these essentials are very clearly and expressly outlined in Scripture, but I have at least one here that doesn't appear so. If it was, then I think there'd be mass agreement, wouldn't you? 
Yeah, I, I, th- I think we can have legitimate debates about the effect of baptism on the soul and uh, its role in the the life of the of the Christian. Uh, because baptism is not described by the Bible as being one of the things that must be believed in order to be a Christian, I wouldn't take, I wouldn't categorize it as an essential for Christian belief. Now, that's not to say that it's not significant or that it's not important or that we shouldn't wrestle with it, but it's just to say that it's not one of the articles without which one cannot be a Christian. Uh, how, how would you as a Protestant handle, say, John chapter 6, where Christ says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will not have eternal life? Uh, you mean, do you want me to give you my interpretation of that passage? Is that what you mean? Well, I am interested in your personal interpretation of the passage, um, but I guess the the more interesting question would be, how do we know that interpretation is true? And on the clear and express reading of this passage, it seems that Christ is saying um, that the Eucharist is necessary for salvation, yet, of course, many people would uh, disagree with that. Um, and so, again, on sola scriptura, how would we resolve that dispute? Uh, well, it seems to me, given uh, what I've read in the Catechism, that not even the Catholics accept what you just seem to characterize as the straightforward reading of that passage. Uh, because though uh, God has bound us to his sacraments, he's not bound by the sacraments, uh, according to the Catechism. And so life can be imparted to the soul, even according, even according to Catholics apart from uh, participation in the Eucharist. Uh, my own personal interpretation of the passage is that the the eating of the flesh and the drinking of the blood refers to coming and believing in, in Jesus, but this is going to take us rather far afield if we start discussing the Eucharist. Yeah, let me, let me ask one more then. Uh, you mentioned lordship twice. You said that that was sort of essential to the gospel, um, but, you know, there's kind of this... Uh, controversy brewing among Protestants with MacArthur, who says that the lordship of Christ must be part of the gospel, and Hodges, who says lordship is only for discipleship and has nothing to do with the gospel. Um, so two men who I, I think would say that, to det- in their view, to determine what the gospel includes, simply turn to the scriptures and read what's what's clear and expressly indicated in the scriptures, yet they arrive at, at two opposing conclusions. And so, again, on sola scriptura, how do we resolve this uh, controversy? How do we determine what scripture actually teaches? Okay. Well, I, I don't want to... Hold, hold on one second, Mike. Go ahead and take uh, a minute, two minutes to answer this, and then we got to go uh, to your question, and then we'll we'll wrap up. So take a minute and a half, and go ahead and wrap this question up, and then we'll go to your final question to Brandon. Okay. Uh, so I don't want to misrepresent either of those two men, but if I were to guess, I would say neither of them disagrees that one must believe that Jesus is in fact the Lord uh, to be saved. The disagreement consists in. Uh, submission to his lordship and what that looks like in one's life and whether that is in fact uh, necessary. But uh, the mere belief that Jesus is the Lord, which is what uh, Romans 10.9 says that we must confess and we, and we must believe, that I think is something that both men would, would consider to be part of the gospel 
and that they would consider to be essential uh, for Christian faith. Okay, and Michael's third and final question to uh, Brandon is, if God was willing to allow the church to wait until 1546 before possessing an infallible decree on the canon, on what basis can one presume that such an infallible decree on the canon is necessary? That's a really good question. It's one I've heard several times before. Um, Let me begin by first adding a caveat that there is sort of some theological questioning within the Catholic Church of whether the canon was, in fact, first infallibly defined at the Council of Trent, 1546. Um, There are other possibly infallible definitions of the canon in um, 382 at the Council of Rome, uh, which was a regional council. It wasn't an ecumenical council. Therefore, its teachings weren't infallible. Hey, hey, Brandon. Hey, Brandon. Hold on one second. Michael, can you hear Brandon okay, or is he chopping up? I believe I can make out what he's saying, but he is a bit choppy. Um, yeah, Brandon, I don't know if you have an issue with your connection, but you were real choppy there the last uh, last few seconds. So if you, I don't know if everything's okay on your uh, end there. Yeah, does this sound all right? Is this fine? Yeah, for whatever reason, it's breaking in and out when you're speaking. Okay, let me uh, let me try to use a different phone here. I'm going to call right back in. Okay, that's fine. Not a problem. So sorry about that, folks. Doing live uh, live radio, sometimes stuff like that happens. But uh, I really appreciate the uh, way these guys have conducted themselves. Uh, it's a good discussion. Hey, and can you, uh, hear, can you hear me now? Ah, uh, you still still breaking up a little bit. Uh, let me try. Did you call in on a? Let's see. Yeah, I'm on. Uh, a, I'm on a different phone now. Is this any okay. better? Yeah, that's a whole lot better. Uh, go okay. right ahead. Sorry, Continue sorry what you were saying. Apologize. That, that, yeah, yep. I was just going to add a quick caveat before I dive into the answer I would give, and that's that in 382 at the Council of Rome, which was not an ecumenical council, it was a regional council, but it was called by Pope St. Uh, Domasus. Uh, the whole list of 73 inspired books was listed at that council, uh, and so some theologians debate whether its decrees were in fact fallible. But then in 1442 at the Council of Florence, which was an ecumenical council, we again find all 73 inspired books. And and many more theologians think that that council did, in fact, infallibly declare the canon. So it's not maybe uh, wholly sure to say that the canon was not infallibly declined until, uh, declared until 1546. But even assuming it was, here's how I would answer that question um, I'd say that that the canon of Scripture was well known before the 16th century. Um, for instance, the Latin Vulgate, which was the Bible used by ordinary people back when ordinary people spoke Latin, they used the canon it contained, which is identical to the canon promulgated at the Council of Trent. Um, and the, this, the canon was never dogmatically defined until it was seriously challenged at the time of the Reformation. There was no serious challenge to what books the Bible did or did not include for the 1,200 years before the Reformation. And so only whenever there was serious 
debate and serious objection to the canon did the church feel that it was necessary to dogmatically define it. Um, I'll also add that scripture isn't an end unto itself. It's a means to an end. And so we don't have a full canon of scripture just so we can complete the collection of what books are in there. Uh, we have scripture so that we can know the gospel and hold to orthodox teachings, you know, all the things that St. Paul talks about in 2 Timothy 3. Now, scripture is, is an immensely useful tool to that end, but it's not the goal of the Christian life. And so in the early church, you find lots of orthodox Christians putting forward different canons of scripture. For the first 300 years, there were several different canons that either included some of the books that we no longer have or that eschew some of the books we do have, but they were all part of the same church and they all held the, the same beliefs. And so all the debates in early Christianity were designed to ensure that people believed the right things. How they got there is almost irrelevant as long as they got there. But the Reformation changed this because the Reformers challenged central teachings like justification by faith and works, prayers for the dead, etc. And so when the Catholics pointed to James on justification or 2 Maccabees on prayers for the dead, Luther denied that these books were inspired, that they should even belong in the canon. So it's only when people stopped believing these central doctrines that the church felt it necessary to dogmatically define the canon because uh, without it, it would have significantly impacted orthodoxy. Seven so what July. do you think about that, Mike? Um, yeah, go, go right well, ahead, Mike. Yep. Yeah, so I think it would be interesting at some point uh, to maybe dive into, I realize we can't right now, but to maybe to dive into some of the historical, or alleged historical pedigree for some of these doctrines. Um, but it seems like what you're saying, if, if I'm understanding it correctly, is it's true that up to a certain point, whether it's 382 or, or 1441 or 1546, I only use that date because that's what uh, Tim Staples said was the first infallible uh, definition. But uh, I realize there could be debates about that among um, on Catholics. That's fine. But there was a, a point in time uh, during which we only had a fallible assurance as to the the list of uh, scriptures. And so it seems like what you're saying is, well, that's not really a big deal because what's important is that you believe the right things. And since there was an infallible church to tell us what to believe, it didn't matter whether we knew what, what books were right as long as we believed what the church was telling us. Uh, is that an accurate summation of your thoughts on that? I'm, I'm not sure if I would put it just like that, um, but I would say a couple things in reply. I would say um, it's not correct from the Catholic view to say that the canon was not infallibly known before it was dogmatically declared in 1546. Um, the church distinguishes between two forms of infallible expression. First, there's the extraordinary magisterium. So this would be like the Pope the ecumenical councils, solemnly defined teachings. And that's precisely what the Council of Trent was. It was an extraordinary, it was an expression of the extraordinary magisterium. But the Catholic Church also holds to the ordinary or universal magisterium, 
which is the common and consistent belief of the church through time. And we also believe that that magisterium holds infallible beliefs. So the canon of scripture was operating through this ordinary magisterium. So it was, in a sense, infallibly believed because it was, in the Latin phrase, everywhere, always, and by all, held up until the time of the Reformation. And so at the Council of Trent, the church was, uh, again, speaking infallibly, just as she does through the ordinary magisterium, but uh, deepening and reinforcing what was already the consistent teaching of the church. Uh, but then to answer your second point, um, I, I, again, I'll reiterate that Scripture, nailing down the canon of Scripture isn't the goal. It's just a means to an end. You know, the end is making sure that people believe the right things so that they can authentically encounter Christ and be saved. And so with an infallible magisterium guiding the church for the first few hundred years, it wasn't as urgent as it is for, say, a Protestant to arrive at an infallible canon, because the magisterium of the church can nevertheless guide people to true belief. Um, but as I mentioned, that became a whole lot more urgent at the time of the Reformation, when central beliefs began to be seriously questioned and challenged, not just by a, a few people on the outskirts, but uh, by many people within the heart of the church. So, so that's when the church felt it was time to exercise the extraordinary magisterium to dogmatically define the canon. Do people have fallible or infallible access to the teaching of the ordinary magisterium? How does that work? How does one access those teachings? Um, I'm not quite sure how to answer that. I guess, uh, can you flesh out maybe what you mean by fallible access? Well, so you say that it was always taught by the ordinary magisterium that the, the, that the canon um, included the 73 books that the Catholics now recognize. Uh, how would a Catholic prior to Trent or prior to Florence or prior to the Council of Rome in 382, how would the Catholic have, have known that? Where, where Where would one go to find that confirmed. Yeah, yeah I, I guess uh, the question is different depending on which of those dates that you're asking about. So, for instance, before, 382, before, before 382, uh, I'm not sure that the ordinary <clears throat> magisterium would have had an infallible canon, um, okay. which is why that there were councils of, of uh, Rome and Carthage and Hippo, you know, regional councils discussing well, this guess- very question. Right, so this is part of a broader, uh, a broader question, I guess, because you, you said earlier, uh, and again, I want to make sure I'm summarizing you a, appropriately here, but um, it seems to me like what you keep saying is, well, script. What's important is that you get the right beliefs, and how you get there isn't as important. So, if the church is there to tell you what to believe, then it wasn't as pressing of an issue for the Catholic Church to have an infallible pronouncement on the canon as it is for the uh, as it is for the Protestants. And I right. would say I agree with you that it's important it's much more important what you believe and much less important as to how you get there. And so if uh, as long as someone has access to the gospel uh, however they get that access whether through uh, the book of Hebrews or through Jesus coming in, in a dream, 
Uh, that's what's important. So I would say, in the very same way, it's not as important that the pro- that the Protestant have infallible access to the canon. All that what's really important is that he have access to the gospel, and God Himself promises that whoever seeks Him uh, will find Him, and God will ensure that he has that access to the gospel. So for the very same reason that you want to say, look, it's not so important that we have an infallible pronouncement on the canon, I want to say the very same thing. Do uh, you understand what I'm what I'm getting at here? I, I kind of grasp what you're saying, but I think there's a key distinction is, <clears throat> like, you, you seem to be suggesting, hey, if, if you as a Catholic say it's not necessary to have an infallible canon, and I, as a Protestant, say it's not necessary to have an infallible canon, then, hey, what's the problem? Um, But that's leaving out a very important caveat that I've mentioned a few times, which is that the Catholic would only say that assuming that we also have an an infallible magisterium to guide us. The only reason it's not urgent to have an infallible canon in the first three centuries of the church is because we have an infallible magisterium, a teaching authority, namely the church. You know, what St. Paul would describe in Second Timothy as the pillar and foundation of truth. And so I don't think, though, that the, the Protestant, and I think you, you would agree, the Protestant doesn't have an infallible outside authority to ensure that even if we, we didn't know with, with 100% certainty what Scripture does not or does not include, that it's okay because we have an infallible guide to lead us to truth. And so there's an, a very important caveat there. We're not talking about apples to apples. We're talking about two different things. Um, but I want to go back to the original question that you asked. I, I don't know. Um, I kind of gave my answer, but was there some sort of um, maybe like latent challenge within there or something like that? Like uh, did you see that uh, declaring the – canon of scripture in 1546 to be problematic like do you think it should have been declared earlier or what was kind of your you got, you got about, a, you got about a, a minute to you got about a minute to ask the question mike brandon's got about a minute to respond and then we're out of time so go ahead okay were you going to finish asking that or was i supposed to respond now no did, did no. you have a question for 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 brandon just to kind of a 30, well, you know what we're going to do? We're going to end it actually right here. And what we'll do instead is just give you guys each uh, 45 seconds to kind of tie the threads up. So, uh, uh, Mike, you go first, and then Brandon will give you 45 seconds. All right. Well, I, I think it's important to uh, stress what has just been, been said, it seems to me, a number of times now, uh, that what's important is that we have access to the gospel, that we have access to what we need in order to have union with God. Now, Brandon's going to say, well, we need to have access to that gospel by infallible means. And exactly what infallible means refers to there, I'm not quite sure, because I know Brandon doesn't think he has 100% certainty with respect to those things. Uh, So, again, I'm, I'm not quite clear what that's supposed to refer to. But I would say God himself promises that we will have access to the gospel, we will have access to what we need in order to be saved if we okay. seek them. And so... Okay, that's... Me, we gotta... We gotta hey, Mike, we, I've got to give Brandon 
uh, 45 seconds as well because we're out of time. Brandon, go ahead. Yeah, I would just say I agree with Mike. What matters is that we believe in the gospel, but I stand with St. Augustine who said that I would not believe the gospel myself if the authority of the church did not move me to do so. And so I think on sola scriptura, you cannot definitively know the gospel outside of your own personal opinion, and that's why we need something more. We need a living and fallible magisterium. Okay, guys, really want to want to thank you again for coming and, and joining us. Uh, you know, folks who listen to the show know we're a Protestant show, but I really recommend uh, you get uh, people go check out Brandon's website. He's got a lot of really good stuff that both uh, Protestants and Catholics can uh, agree on and use. Probably, you know, 90% of the stuff they do over there, uh, we can certainly lock arms with them and uh, learn a lot from them. So, Brandon, I really want to thank you for coming on the show. Uh, you did a great job representing your view. Mike, really appreciate you coming on the show as well. And uh, any, yeah. any final words? Yeah, thank you guys. Mike, you're great. Thanks so much for a wonderful discussion. Likewise. I hope we can do it again sometime. That was a lot of fun. A lot of fun. All right. Thanks, everybody. And uh, tune in next week for another episode of Theology Matters. Take care and God bless.